0: Would you turn with me, please, to the 10th chapter of the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 10. We've uh, come now in our study in the book of Daniel to the last vision in this book. Chapters 10, 11, and 12 are, uh, are a unit. I mentioned before, beginning with chapter 7, there's a there's a change, a marked change in the book, the first six chapters have to do with Daniel himself. The emphasis is upon Daniel the prophet. From chapter 7 on, the emphasis is upon the prophecies of Daniel. There are four of them. One in chapter 7, one in chapter 8, one in chapter 9, and now one in chapters 10, 11, and 12. And chapter 10 is the prologue to this, uh, this final vision in the book. Now, it would be interesting to me to find out how many of you had a lot of difficulty with this chapter. Particularly those of you that may be just finding your way around in the Bible. You may be new Christians, and a lot of this is new information to you. And uh, if if I could read your mind, I know when you came to chapter 10, you had a hard time with it. Because there are a lot of very strange things that happen in chapter 10. And they may mystify you. They would me, the first time I, uh, I read through this chapter. It's, it's an intriguing, very, very interesting chapter, though. Because if we take what Daniel says at face value, it will change the way we look at reality. You will walk out of here looking at life entire, in an entirely different way. Now, I'm going to read the chapter. I'm going to skip over portions of it because it's somewhat repetitive. But I'm going to read the chapter, even though it's somewhat lengthy. And then I'm going to go back and talk about it in some detail. Okay, chapter 10, verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar. Its message was true, and it concerned a great war. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. So the vision is dated for us, in the third year of King Cyrus. And it's a very important date. Because it was just about this time that the work on the temple in Jerusalem was frustrated. In the first year of Cyrus, Cyrus, as you know, is the Persian king. Cyrus issued a decree to the exiled Judeans to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Which they did. A small contingent went back. They rebuilt the altar. They began to rebuild the walls of the city. The Samaritans, who had wanted originally to cooperate in the work and uh, who had been told uh, that they were not needed or wanted, had begun to oppose the building. They wrote letters to the king of Persia and they told him that these Jews were a group of seditious, rebellious people and that they would turn on the Persian Empire if they were permitted to build the temple. So Cyrus shut the project down. He issued a decree and stop the project. All that is in the book of Ezra, chapters 1 through 4. You can read it on uh, read read it on your own this this week. Ezra is like reading the newspapers. It's like looking at the headlines and seeing the events of history. Daniel goes behind the scene to tell us what's what's happening in in, in the unseen realm. Cyrus issues an edict to stop the uh, stop the building, but that's not all that's going on as we see from from Daniel 10. Now, when Daniel received word that the project had come to an end, or at least had been temporarily uh, uh, thwarted, forestalled, he began to pray. He began to fast and to pray, and he was given a vision in response to, uh, to his prayer. The message came to him in a vision, we're told. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. He began to fast and pray because he didn't understand the vision. He was given a vision, but it wasn't interpreted to him. He was confused. So he began to pray and he began to fast and wait for an interpretation. On the 24th day of the first month, I was standing on the bank of the great river, the uh, the Tigris. He wasn't transported there in a vision as he was in one of the former visions. He was probably there on official business. I was standing on the bank of the great river, the, uh, the, the Tigris. I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of the finest gold around his waist. His body was like chrysolite. Chrysolite is a translucent uh, stone, somewhat like uh, like a diamond. His face like lightning, flashes flames of fire coming out of his face. His eyes like flaming torches. His arms and legs like the gleam of burnished or polished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. The men with me did not see it. But such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves, so I was left alone gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale. He became white as a sheet, and I was helpless. Then I heard him speaking, and as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. Daniel fainted dead away. A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words I'm about to speak to you and stand up for I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. Then he continued, do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. God took his words seriously. And I have come in response to them, literally because of them. When Daniel began to pray, God immediately dispatched this man in order to, to explain the vision. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days, which explains the three-week delay as described earlier. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I was left there. By the side of the kings of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future. For the vision concerns, concerns a time yet to come. And then Daniel goes on to explain his emotional state. And the strength that the angel gave him. Verse 18. Again, the one who looked like a man touched me and gave me strength. Do not be afraid, O man highly esteemed. He said, Peace, be strong now, be strong. When he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Speak, my Lord, since you have given me strength. So he said, Do you know why I have come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go, the prince of Greece will come. But first I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. No one supports me against them. The antecedent of the pronoun would be the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece. No one supports me against them except Michael, your, Israel's, prince. And in the first day of Darius the Meat, that would be Cyrus again, I took my stand to support and to protect him. And I read a chapter like that and I say, what in the world is going on? What is the prince of Persia? Who is the prince of Greece? What is he, what is he, uh, what does he mean by Michael, your prince? What is, what's happening here? Well, let me explain what, what's behind this, this vision. The man that he saw in the vision was an angel. Probably the angel of the Lord. The description here is very much like the description of our Lord in Revelation. But whenever you see angels turning up in Scripture, they, they very often look like this. They don't appear as uh, plump uh, babies with uh, butterfly wings. They look fierce and awesome. As a matter of fact, uh, normally when people have seen angels, they have fallen on their face. They have faded dead away. They have been frightened out of their wits. Because they are fearsome, awesome, impressive creatures, possessed sometimes of, of superhuman size and sometimes of, of superhuman strength. And the question is, what, what, what are these angels? Who are they? Where do angels come from? Are they uh, the souls of departed spirits? How, how can we account for angels? Well, the New Testament tells us what an angel is, tells us what an angel is and what an angel does. And uh, the best and most succinct description of an angel is in the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 14, the writer of Hebrews says that angels are ministering spirits sent to serve those who are the heirs of salvation. Now that verse tells us what an angel is, what his being is. He's a spirit. And it tells what angels do, what their function is. They serve those that are the heirs of salvation. That's us, those that belong to Jesus Christ. Angels, first of all, are spirits. That is, they're non-material. They don't have bodies, such as we do. They may appear in a body from time to time, and there are these appearances both in the form of human beings, as in the case of Abraham. Abraham saw three strangers who showed up at his tent and who appeared to be normal human beings. And sometimes they show up as superhuman beings. They may have the form of, of a man, a, a glorious a glorious form of a man, as you see here in, in, in the book of Daniel. But normally, they're invisible. You can't see them. These spirits inhabit... The world of spiritual realities, what we would call heaven, the spiritual world. Now, we we mustn't understand that heaven is up there or that hell is down there. Uh, Those directions are sometimes used as just an accommodation to our understanding. But the spiritual world is not out there in space somewhere. It is all around us. It's another dimension of reality that we are unaware of apart from revelation. If these angels in the past had not revealed themselves, and if God had not had not revealed truth about angels in the spirit world to us in Scripture, we simply wouldn't know anything of its existence. But it's there nevertheless. A number of years ago, I read an article in, uh, in Scientific America, in, uh, in that magazine, entitled Flatland USA. It's since become a classic, I understand. I just happened to stumble across it. And uh, it's a it's a description of what life would be like to someone who lived in a two-dimensional world and how they would perceive a normal three-dimensional person like us. At times, he'd be able to observe the presence of that person in his two-dimensional world, but at other times, he would be totally uh, uh, oblivious to his presence. He'd be invisible to him outside his realm of reality. And it struck me when I read that, that's a it's a good description of what heaven is like. Heaven isn't up there. It's all around us. In other words, these spiritual beings that are described here in in Daniel 10 are here, present, in this room. If our eyes were opened, we would see that the air is filled with spirit beings. Now, that's a little bit scary to think about, but it's true. That's reality. Either we have to take the Bible seriously or we don't. Jesus and the apostles and the prophets believed in angels. And they believed that they were just as real as those chairs that you're sitting in. Now, our problem is that we're basically materialists. By that, we mean that matter is all that that matters. And uh, we tend to think if something isn't real, if you can't touch it, taste it, see it, hear it, smell it, it isn't real. But these angels are real. They're all around us. Now, that may even either be a comfort or it may scare you out of your wits. I remember once telling Randy when he was just a small boy, he was worried about something, and I told him that God was with him right there in the room. Scared him half to death. He couldn't sleep half the night. at the thought of God being in the room with him. But nevertheless, it's true. He's here. Now, do you want an illustration of that uh, truth? Turn back to the book of 2 Kings. Let me read an interesting story to you. Second Kings six. Once you make it through the first five books of the Bible, there's Joshua, Judges, Ruth, first and second Samuel, first and second Kings. Second Kings six. Verse eight. Now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. The king of Aram is a man by the name of Ben Hadad. The king of Israel was Ahab. After conferring with his officers, he, that is, Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram, said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, that was Elisha, Beware of passing that place, because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in, in such places. In other words, Elisha... New things that the king of Israel didn't know. He was tipping off the king of Israel and his armies to the presence of the Arameans. This enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, Will you not tell me which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? None of us, my lord the king, said one of his officers. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel, The very words you speak in your bedroom. Go find out where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. The report came back. He is in Dothan, this tiny little town up in the northern part of Palestine and Israel and modern-day Galilee. That's the place where Joseph got tossed into the pit and sold to the Midianites. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh, my Lord, what shall we do, the servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them." Did, did, did you, do you understand what he's saying? Elisha and his servant in this tiny little unfortified city, surrounded by the, by the armies of the Arameans, their chariots, And Elisha's servant panics. And he says, what are we going to do? And Elisha says, don't worry. There's more of us than there are of them. And Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes so he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Do you understand what he saw? He saw what was there all the time. The angels didn't show up. At that point, they had been there all the time. And as you go on and read the rest of the story, you'll see how Elisha and his servant were protected. That's a vivid illustration of the principle that that angelic hosts surround us all the time. Everywhere present. Always available to help us. Now, according to this passage, it would seem that nations have guardian angels. Michael is described as Israel's prince. In other words, tiny Israel has an angel that looks after her. There's a reason for that, because it was through Israel that God planned to bring salvation to the world. It was through Israel that the promise was given. It was through Israel that our Lord Jesus came. And so the archangel, who is the highest in this hierarchy of angels, is assigned to Israel to look after her. It also seems that we as individuals... Have angels. This idea of 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 a guardian angel is is, seems to be right on target because Jesus referred to little children as those whose angels behold the face of my Father in heaven. So not only do nations have angels, so do we. I'm sure my angel uh, runs himself ragged looking after me, but it would seem that that the angel is there in the unseen realm just as real as the things that we see, there to serve us. And the first thing I want you to see is that these angels are spirits. The second thing I want you to see is that they are there to serve. You see that vividly in the book of Daniel. Remember back in chapter 3 when Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego were cast into the fiery furnace? Nebuchadnezzar looked into the furnace and he said, I see someone like a son of the gods walking with them. I put three men in there and now I see four. And when they came out, Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego said, God sent his angel to take care of us. And then in chapter 6, when Cyrus put, uh, put uh, Daniel himself in the lion's den, when Daniel came out of the lion's den unscathed, he said to the king, uh, he said, the Lord shut the mouths of the lions. He sent his angel to shut the mouths of the lions. So they're there to serve, you see. The same is true of of our Lord after the the terrible temptation described for us in in the Gospels, in the fourth chapter of Matthew. After Satan left him, the angels came and ministered to him. And then in the garden, the final phase of temptation, when he was tempted to turn away from the cross after he withstood that temptation, the angels came and, and ministered to him. So these angels are spirits that operate in the unseen realm. They seem to be organized into some sort of hierarchy. There are nations that have, the, have angels to protect them and look after them and serve them and provide for them. And we have angels that are sent by God to protect us and look after us and care for us and provide for us in various ways as, as we're going to see. That's what's described here in, in chapter 10. Either that's true or... Or it's just a figment of our imagination. And if it's a figment of our imagination, we can't trust anything in the Bible. Now, you'll notice that not only are there, is there Michael, one of the chief princes, and there is this man who is obviously on the Lord's side and, and there to serve Daniel. But there are others that are described as the prince of the Persian kingdom who resists God, God's plan to bring salvation to us. And uh, then there is the prince of Greece over in verse twenty. Who opposes this uh, angel, whose purpose it is to to serve Daniel and and to aid Michael on behalf of of Israel? And my question is, who are these uh, who are these spirits? Who are these princes? Well, these are demons. And then the question is, what what are demons? Where do demons come from? Well, as I've, as I've said before so many times, Christians are not dualists. We do not believe, uh, that there are two equal and opposite powers. We do not believe that there is God and then there is Satan who are equal in their, uh, equal and, and opposite in their authority. We don't believe in the light and dark side of the force. What we believe is that there is one God who is sovereign, who is the creator of everything. And he created the angelic world as well as the world of human beings. Demons, apparently, are angels that rebelled against God. And uh, they rebelled in concert with the demon that we call Satan. Satan is not equal to God. you understand that? He is a created being. He's an angel, an angelic being that rebelled against God. He wanted to be God. Now, we're not sure, but uh, we think that uh, Isaiah 14 may describe the, what, what C.S. Lewis calls the Grand Rebellion. That time that, that, that Satan stated his intentions when he said, I will ascend the, the mountain to the north. I will be like God. I will be above the stars of God. He wanted to be worshipped. See, that, that was the problem. Only God is worthy of worship. Satan wants to be worshipped, and that's why he rebelled. You can see that in the temptations of Jesus. The third and last temptation, which our Lord experienced, uh, was uh, when Satan said to him, he took him up on the top of a high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he, and he said, these kingdoms are mine. And he wasn't lying. He is the God of this world. He is the prince of this age. The nations of this world are his. He holds the world in his lap, as John puts it. This is his world. This is not right now our Father's world. He said to Jesus, These kingdoms are mine. I'll give them to you if you'll just fall down and worship me. And uh, he tipped his hand. We can see what it is that Satan wants. He's begging Jesus to worship. Oh, please, he's saying, just fall down and worship me. Please. And we see him for the sniveling, prideful uh, uh, individual personality that he is. It just wants worship. He wants. He wants to be God. He wants to be served and worshipped as God. And when he rebelled, apparently he drew with him uh, what Revelation describes as a third of the stars of heaven. We, it's, it's difficult to know what interpretation to make of the numbers in Revelation, but a third seems to be less than half. Seems to have that idea. So that less than half of the angelic hosts were drawn into this rebellion with Satan. And these are the, are the enemies of the gospel that we describe as demons. And our Lord believed in demons just as much as he believed in angels. He cast out demons as a sign of his authority over them. And what we need to understand is that Satan is the great opponent. He is the enemy of the gospel. In fact, his Satan, his name, Satan, Satan, it's actually just a transliteration of his Hebrew name, means enemy or opponent. Satan's purpose is to destroy everything that God is doing in the world. He hates God, and he hates you because you belong to God. You don't mean anything to him. The reason he opposes you is not because you're anything special, but it's because he wants to get at God, and if he can harm you, then that reflects in some sense upon God, and so he wants to destroy you. Peter says he's like a roaring lion, roaming about, seeking whom he may devour. He wants to have you for lunch. C. S. Lewis picked up that idea in in a, a, a essay entitled Screwtape tape proposes a toast. As you know, screw tape is a demon. And uh, Lewis works uh, backwards in, in his Screwtape Letters and also in this uh, final uh, essay on on the demons. Uh, the scene is uh, in hell at the annual dinner of the Tempters Training College for Young Devils. And uh, the principal, uh, Dr. Slubgob, has just uh, introduced the guest of honor, who is our friend Screwtape, who is giving the... Uh, Uh, the uh, speech for this particular occasion. And he rambles his way through a description of what demons are to do. And then finally he says, I would not, hell forbid, encourage in your own minds that delusion which you must carefully foster in the minds of your human victims. I mean the delusion that the fate of nations is in itself more important than that of individual souls. The overthrow of free peoples and the multiplication of slave states are for us a means. But the real end is the destruction of individuals. For only individuals can be saved or damned, can become sons of the enemy, or food for us. The ultimate value for us of any revolution, war, or famine lies in the individual anguish, treachery, hatred, rage, and despair which it may produce. Satan goes after nations because he wants to destroy people. He wants to destroy you. And he'll use any means to get at you and frustrate and thwart what God is doing in, in your life. The, the prince of the kingdom of Persia and the prince of Greece here are the, the demons that are assigned to these nations, to Persia and Greece. And given the assignment to thwart and frustrate God's purposes, to try to ruin and, and blight and uh, and desolate God's God's people. And that's what he does to us. He will work through nations. He'll work through individuals. He'll do anything he can to frustrate what God is doing in your life. He'll cause us to to long for other things. He'll cast doubt into our minds. He'll cause despair and discouragement. Uh, He will do whatever he can to try to shut down the work that God is doing in your life. And what what Daniel describes here in chapter 10 is is the... cosmic conflict that's going on in the spiritual realm that we cannot see, but it's just as real as the conflict that we face in everyday life. In a moment we're going to look at another passage in Ephesians 6 where Paul says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers and the rulers of darkness in this world. The people that oppose you, the the difficult people in your life, whoever they may be, are not the enemy; they're the victims of the enemy. They've been chosen by by demonic uh, hosts in order to plague and blight and desecrate your life. That's why, and it can happen even with Christians. He can work through Christians in order to frustrate God's purposes in our lives, unwitting, unwittingly. Christians can be used, as Peter was when he tried to stop Jesus from going to the cross. Our Lord had set his face like a flint to go to the cross. And he told the apostles that he must go to Jerusalem and die. And Peter said, it must not be so. And, and Jesus looked at him and he said, get out of my way, Satan. That was his friend. But he recognized behind his friend the, the voice of the evil one who was trying to deflect him from the course that, that God had, had called him to. Now, I want you to turn to one other passage of of Scripture, if you will. Revelation chapter 12. We've looked at this passage before. It's a very graphic picture of the way Satan works. The picture is always worth a thousand words. So it's better simply to get the picture in our mind because that will stay with us. The words uh, go, but the picture stays. Revelation 12, a great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, that is, in the spirit world. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. The woman is Israel. Now we're going to see in chapter 11 that the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece go after Israel with a vengeance to destroy her. Why? Well, because she was pregnant. In verse 2, and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Israel's destiny was to give birth to the Messiah. From uh, the very beginning, from the call of Abraham on, that promise was reiterated. One of these days, out of Israel would come the Savior. That little lamb that was sacrificed in the temple day after day was simply a symbol of the Lamb of God that was to come and take away the sin of the world. In Israel, as in, in our faith as Christians, the cross is central. That sacrifice is central. And uh, Satan wanted to, wanted to stop it. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon. It's the old serpent. Satan himself, with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky. It's a description of this great rebellion. And Satan rebelled against God, wanted to be God, and was thrown out of out of God's presence and drew with him, uh, with his tail is the way it's described. He, he drew with him a third of the stars out of the sky. This, this may be where uh, the idea came from that Satan has a tail. Who knows? My father used to tell me about an evangelist that, that came through his part of the country. His name was Billy Nichols. And he was being heckled one day by someone in the crowd, and the man said, uh, "Billy, w- w- uh, how do you get your hat over your uh, your halo?" And Mr. Nichols said, "I don't know." He said, "How do you get your pants over your tail?" <laughs> but of course, this is this is mere symbol. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth, so that he might devour her child a moment. It was born, and that's what we've seen all the way through Daniel. Israel was destined to give birth to the child, and first the Babylonians, and then the Persians, and then the Greeks, and then the Romans tried to destroy the woman so the child could never be born. Who was behind all of that? Well, it wasn't the the human powers on the throne. It was the power behind the power see, if we're realists, if we look at things as they really are, then we have to say Shakespeare was right. All the world's a stage, and all the people are merely players. That behind the, behind the stage, there is a master playwright who's controlling the destiny of everyone. It's a gross error to think that we're autonomous beings, that we're in control of our lives. We're not. We're either controlled by an evil force, or we're controlled by God. There isn't any middle position. And what you know? See, this is a new way of looking at history. History is his story. Behind the scenes, God is trying to work out events so that the Son can be born who will bring salvation to the world. And Satan is trying to thwart that purpose. That's the explanation for the great monsters of history—the Hitlers and others that have that have come to the to the throne. There was a there's a power behind the power, but. Despite these attempts to try to stop the birth of the son, she gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. That's the resurrection and the ascension. Verse 7. And there was war in heaven. Michael. Ah, you remember Michael? Back in Daniel? The archangel who represents uh, Israel, who fights for Israel. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan that leads the whole world astray. So he's a defeated foe. When Christ died on the cross, he was, he was once for all defeated. He could still create a great deal of mischief, but he'll never win. He'll never win. That, you know, back in Genesis three fifteen. There's the promise given that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. In so doing, he would bruise his heel. The, the, the death of the serpent would be accomplished through pain. But he would deal a mortal wound to the Satan, uh, to the serpent. And this is what happened here. The, Satan is doomed. His destiny is fixed. He's thrown out of heaven. That's why we don't have to fear him. That's why we don't have to, to, to tremble because he's he's finished. And, uh, and then we're told in verse 10, that a loud voice in heaven said, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ for the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. And then in verse 13, When the dragon saw that he'd been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman, and the woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she may fly to a place prepared for her in the desert so Israel is preserved. And then in verse 17, then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. And that's us. That's the church. We are her offspring. And that's the explanation for all the opposition that we face. That's why our marriages uh, begin to go awry. That's why our children give us grief. That's why we begin to experience sickness and suffering and pain. That's why we're afflicted with doubt. That's why uh, we get confused. Sometimes our minds are fogged and we forget what we're all about. It's because we have an enemy who's out to destroy us. And we must never forget it. Paul says we're not ignorant of his devices. And when we're opposed, when something steps in our path on our way to God, we need to know precisely what that is. It's not the human being that opposes us. It's the demon behind us. The human being. Now let's go back to Daniel. Verse 12. Do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding. Remember, Daniel did not understand the vision. He wanted to know what God was saying to him. but He was confused. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. That's at least one explanation for these seemingly inexplicable delays of God. When we're oppressed, when the sky seems to be brass, when we we don't think God hears us or cares, and we continue to pray and ask for help and no help comes... Very often there is a spiritual conflict going on behind the scenes which we do not see. That's what was happening here. For 21 days, this angel was resisted. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. And I was left there by the side of the kings of Persia. Now, I think what he's saying is that the struggle went on and then then he was left there alone with the kings of Persia. That is, he could begin to influence the human rulers of the city of Persia because the demon was taken out of the way. And that's why he says, later, I'm going to go back. I have, I have more to do. There's work to be accomplished with the, uh, with the kings of, of Persia. And what actually happened, as you read on into the book of Ezra, is that uh, Cyrus uh, died. And his son Cambyses came on the throne. And Cambyses continued to resist the efforts of the Jews to go back and rebuild the, the temple. Cambyses went stark, raving, mad when he was down in Egypt. Killed himself. We could read that in the newspapers and say, my, my, you know, what, what was behind that? The next king who came to the throne was Darius, who, as one of those crooks of history, had come into contact with Zoroastrianism, had become a monotheist, was much more open toward the Jews, and who reissued the decree to go back. And on a historical level, we look at it and we say, well, that's just politics and We say, no, behind the scenes is the spiritual struggle that's going on. The demon, who is the prince of Persia, trying to frustrate and and quell attempts to get God's people back to the the land. Michael and this other angel, whom I think is the angel of the Lord, fighting side by side to overthrow this angel and to then influence Darius to send send the Jews back. That was the conflict that was going on behind, behind the scenes. Now, he says in verse 14, I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future. For the vision concerns a time yet to come. We'll talk about that next week when we get into chapter 11. The explanation of the vision that Daniel saw comes in chapters 11 and, and 12. And you see, what, what the demon, who was the prince of Persia, was trying to do is to stop this angel from getting to Daniel and restoring his sense of confidence in God. And it just struck me again as I read through this chapter that one of Satan's finest schemes, one of his most destructive strategies, is to destroy our confidence in the Word of God. That's how it all began. Snake came slithering into the garden. He says to Eve, oh, come on now. Has God really said you can't eat from any tree? I mean, isn't that just like God? Just trying to snuff out your fun, cramp your style, make your life miserable. So what I always thought about God. Eve says, well, uh, actually, no, we can only eat of, can't eat of one tree. If we eat of that tree, we'll die. Satan says, you will not die. It's a lie. And that's what Satan does to us over and over again. uh, I've been to two secular universities in my lifetime, Southern Methodist University and University of California, Berkeley. I sat in classrooms, and I listened to professors, very, very attractive, winsome personalities, brilliant people who undermined my faith in the Scriptures. It was very subtle, and it took a while, but it worked. I'd walk out of those classrooms thinking, did God really say that to me? Can I really trust his goodness? Do I really believe that, that he's for me and that he wants me to draw near to him? You know, just very subtle, quiet attacks upon my faith. Nice people. Extremely nice people. And one day I happened to be reading through the book of Revelation and I I saw in, in symbolic form one of the henchmen that Satan uses to to thwart and frustrate God's God's attempts to draw us to himself. And it's described as a lamb. A little innocent lamb. Two little horns on its head. little little uh, inoffensive creature. Never harmed anyone. And it opens its mouth. And you hear the dragon roar. And I thought, that's it. That's it. That's what I'm hearing. That lamb is opening its mouth and out comes the dragon's roar. And you see, that's what's happening to us. That's why, is, as Lewis puts it, the air gets thick in Narnia. We get fogged. We don't want to believe that what God says is true. Our minds get confused and we're filled with doubt and despair and, and unbelief and we want to give it up and, and Satan has done his, done his job. He's accomplished what he set out to accomplish. But Daniel said that in the meantime... These angels have been trying to break through, and they will break through. It may take time, but they will break through, and our clarity will will be restored. Then we're told that, that the angel was going to go back, and he was going to fight against the prince of Persia, which he did. And eventually Darius did give them permission to go back to the land. And then the prince of Greece, he says, will assault us. The prince of Greece was the demon that was in charge of Alexandria's empire and then the empires that followed him, the four kingdoms into which his empire was divided. We'll talk about that in chapter 11 and 12 and specifically the two eastern kingdoms represented by Syria and Egypt in their attempts to try to to desolate and desecrate the altar so that the sacrifices would come to an end. Now there's one other passage I want you to look at and it's Ephesians 6 and with this I'm done. Ephesians chapter 6. This is the New Testament counterpart of this passage we've been reading. Verse 10, finally, or from now on, be strengthened in the Lord. The verb is passive. Be strengthened in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. His assaults to tempt us to sin and and doubt and fear and depression discouragement. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Did did Paul believe in in a world of spirit beings? You can bet your life he did. He knew that our struggle was not against human uh, opponents. It was rather against the powers of this dark world. Therefore, he says, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, that is, when you're assaulted, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. That's the first thing to do is remind yourself of the truth of Scripture. This is reality. We have to start looking at things the way God looks at them. And that's where Satan obfuscates things. He keeps everything fuzzy and and ill-defined. And what we have to do is first cinch up our belt and remind ourselves of the truths, what, what Daniel had to do. With the breastplate of righteousness in place, that is, a, a, the uh, the righteousness that comes from a blood-washed conscience, an awareness that Christ has paid the price for our sin, and that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, our peace with God. The fact that he made peace in the cross. In addition to this, taking up the shield of faith which, which with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, ultimate salvation. That's our hope, reminding ourselves that our destiny is, is firm and fixed and certain and sure. We're not going to lose our salvation. That's what keeps our minds uh, uh It defends and protects our minds. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. What Paul is saying is that you don't fight spiritual warfare with physical weapons, with material weapons. You fight them with with immaterial weapons. The truth of God, basically, and prayer. You remind yourself of what's real, and you pray. Or you pray, and then you're reminded of what's real. That's exactly what happened to Daniel. He was unclear, he was confused, and he prayed, and the angel broke through. And he saw the truth. He saw things as they really are. Just uh, this last week, uh, there, there is a certain thing in my life that has just harassed me on and off for the last year. And I have been so frustrated because every time the thing gets in order, something happens and it gets disarranged, uh, uh, rearranged, and, and you know, just chaotic. There's a, there's a uh, 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 what's the name of the uh, British... Can't think of his name, but anyway, there's a line in an old British British movie. I can I can handle the despair. It's the hope I can't take, and I, that kept coming back to me over and over again. I can handle, you know, if I could look at the thing and say it's never going to work out, but it seems to work out, and then everything falls apart again. And uh, I just couldn't seem to get a grip on what was real or a grip on God and. And one morning, I got up and I was just just uh, discouraged and and frustrated. And I went into my living room and I sat down and I began to pray. And I said, "God, you've you've got to go to go to bat for me on this thing. I I can't handle this any longer. You've got to do something about it." And uh, I have a little devotional book that I've been using for some time, and it has an Old Testament and a New Testament reading. And on this particular day. It's set up by dates. And I flipped the thing open. And on this particular day, it was the passage in Second Peter where Peter says, uh, He says, we, uh, we wait for a new heaven and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. And all of a sudden, everything became crystal clear. I realized how confused I'd gotten and I'd been thinking for the last year that somehow righteousness is going to dwell in the old heaven and the new earth and the old earth. But Peter says, he won't. what we wait for is the new heaven and the new earth wherein righteousness dwells. And it all became crystal clear. And my depression and discouragement lifted. And there was hope because I, I began to look at things realistically. And I began to see what had happened. That that the, the conflict out there in the, in the spiritual world had been going on. And I was feeling the effects of it. I was being assaulted and attacked. By demonic hordes. And uh, I wasn't employing the, the weapons of the spiritual warfare, which is prayer and the truth. Now, if you're there this morning and, and that's what you're struggling with, I would encourage you to, to think seriously about this. That we don't struggle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the rulers of darkness and our and our weapons are spiritual weapons they're the weapons of truth and prayer let's let's pray <clears throat> lord we uh, we come to you again aware that the battle is yours it's not ours and we can this morning rest in your adequacy we can clothe ourselves with the with the armor which you have forged and which you furnished for us. The, the spiritual equipment that readiness that readies us for anything and that we can stand. We ask for that firmness to be able to stand fast in times of assault. We thank you for your word that tells us the truth. We thank you for uh, your power that's made available to us through prayer. We ask that we would avail ourselves of these weapons. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.